الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد الأشرف الخلق وسيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد in this session we're going to take a pause to do a survey but I'm going to wait for more people to come back to their tables I see some of the tables are empty from after salah so I'll wait on the survey for 5-10 minutes and then we'll do it inshallah so we'll start off this session with uh, some of the questions uh, that uh, I think the sister who had the question is not here now. Uh, uh, she's here. Uh, we'll start off with some of the questions that people had. Um, we can start off with you, sister. Go ahead. What was your question? Come sit down. Hello. Okay. Is she a Muslim? She's a Muslim? Okay. All right, so Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The question was, how can I address a question who sa- uh, from, from a Muslim who says, how can you follow a man um, in his words when you have the words of God and why don't you just stick with the words of God, words of Allah Azza wa Jal. So how can you accept to follow a man? So now the, question, the, the answer to this question is multifold. We addressed parts of it already, sister. And what we explained before, one part of this is to realize, hey, look, who's communicating to us the words of Allah? It's the Prophet ﷺ. He's telling us that Allah says, right? So if it's mistrust of the Prophet ﷺ, then I might as well mistrust what he says that Allah says too. All right? How can, you know, because if, if he's telling me and he's not a trustworthy person, then you know what? I can't even believe the words of the Quran, so I might as well not be Muslim. The second thing is, as we explained before, the Qur'an has general rulings. Without the sunnah, these general rulings will be deficient. What does deficient mean? They're not complete. Why? Because Allah told us to do certain things in the Qur'an, and we don't know how to do them without the example of the Prophet ﷺ. So I'm forced between two conclusions. I either say that the example, or I should say the model of how to follow through with this is in the Prophet, or I'm going to say Allah did not clarify to us how to do it. And if I say this, then I'm accusing Allah, right? I'm accusing Allah Himself. Allah Himself is the one who said, He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, never speaks of His own whim and accord. You cannot alter this verse of the Qur'an. If you're a Muslim who believes in the Qur'an, it's directly telling you that everything the Prophet said is part of revelation. In huwa illa wahyun yuha. So, in fact, this person doesn't even understand the Qur'an. If they're saying, why should I believe the words of another person and human being? 
Because this be human being was chosen to communicate the messages of God. And those messages are general and detailed. Quran, general. Sunnah, detailed. Right? Quran, general. Sunnah, detailed. So this is, this is the answer to this type of question. That, you know, you, if you're going to believe in Islam, then there's no way you could do that without believing in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Where does the issue really come about? People, don't, people who deny the sunnah don't deny the Prophet. But they deny the companions. And they deny, what? The communicators of the hadith. They say, oh, maybe the, we have weak hadiths and we have fabricated hadiths. So we don't trust. Maybe the ones who carried it to later generations, they tempered with it. Right? That's what they would say. Right? The answer to this question is, if Allah said He's going to preserve it, and then the ones who were left with the responsibility of carrying it, betrayed it, that means Allah did not fulfill His promise. That means, again, why do we believe that the message of the Prophet ﷺ is the final message? It's going to be preserved. The previous messages were tampered with. Right? They were altered. The uh, Torah and the Injil were tampered with and altered by its carriers. And if that happened to the Qur'an, then guess what? There would be no guidance on earth now. If, you know, people, okay, if, there, if people were able to actually um, alter the message of Islam, then on the Day of Judgment, every single one of us is going to have an excuse. So Allah, you sent to us a message that was distorted by people. I could not trust that it was from you. So how could you expect me to have followed it, right? Then, in that case, there will be no point and purpose for guidance altogether. We're all in this dark, deep, dark abyss, and no one could be guided today. That's it. We're all rufa'an, there's no taklif, that's it. Now, if, if the message of Muhammad, sallallahu was tampered with, that would be the problem. So, now, how can we trust the companions? Maybe they erred. That was one of the questions that came here. It was one of the questions that came here. Well, we're not telling you to trust an individual companion. We're telling you to trust the generational communication of this message that Allah says. Allah says this in the Quran. That's why Sunnah, mainstream Muslims, believe in the uprightness of the companions. They do not defame the integrity of the companions, they do not attack their character. They do not say the companions of the Prophet ﷺ were hypocrites or, um, or were otherwise. Why? Because Allah says Allah is pleased with them and He is pleased with, uh, and they are pleased with Him. How would Allah be pleased with a people who altered the message of their Prophet or would in the future alter the message of their Prophet? That means my problem belief is not really in the companions, it's in, it's in Allah. I have a problem in belief in Allah. And that's what we need to resolve first and foremost. Right? So it's not me depending on individual companions. It's the generational communication that is categorically sound. It's, it's, it's following procedures and protocols that are of a very high level. Right? Allahu alam. Does that answer your question? Okay. Um, does anyone have any quick question before we go on? Just for the sake of time. Yes, go ahead, sister. Yes. Okay. Yes. He didn't. 
All right, so Jazakallah khair for this question. Um, he, this is actually uh, something that is uh, debated by scholars. There's differing views on it. Did the Prophet ﷺ learn how to read and write uh, before uh, he passed away? Some scholars say yes. Why? Because they say that the miracle, in order for it to be established, it was sufficient that the Prophet ﷺ was ummi and unlettered until the message was brought to people. After they realized the miracle of the Qur'an, they knew that this could not be from Muhammad. But after that, was there anything against the, the, the fact that... So the Prophet ﷺ being unlettered and illiterate was not because he was incapable of learning. It wasn't because the Prophet was ignorant, right? It wasn't because the Prophet ﷺ uh, did not have the, uh, the, the capacity to uh, absorb things. In fact, he was very intelligent, Wasallam. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ, as a prophet, he had fatana. Fatana is the, 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 the level of intelligence needed for prophets to establish proofs against their people. Right? So it, the Prophet ﷺ was very intelligent. Um, so this opinion states, with his intelligence, there's nothing to say why he would not learn later on in his life. Or some of them would take this narration and say, no, this is the Prophet ﷺ would have... Um, would have told one of the companions. It wasn't, it's not meant literally that he would write. That he would instruct one of the companions to write. Allah So there's nothing clear cut. Did the Prophet learn how to read and write or not? There's nothing clear cut on that. But there's a scholarly difference about it. Some say yes, some say no. And there's nothing to deny either opinion. Wallahu alam. Um, now, uh, before we continue, we have more people back now. Uh, we want to do this survey. So I'm going to X out of this. Uh, I'm going to share with you guys... Where is it? Okay. All right, I do not know where the link went. Maybe I accidentally X'd out of it. Uh, but the point is here. Um, we have a survey that was... Uh, are all of you guys in the group? Is everyone here in the group? Yes? Anyone not in the group? If you look at the group, there was a survey shared. If you could please take a look at it. You did it already? MashaAllah, you're ahead of the curve. Um, uh, so, so if you look at the survey, if you open it up, it's, this is a critical survey for us to hear from you guys. Uh, we want to understand a, a little bit about your demographics, um, just so we know who's attending the classes. And we want to know your feedback for today about, uh, you know, how you were able to digest the information. Uh, was it difficult? Was it easy? Uh, was it fast? Was it slow? Whatever it is. Uh, did you find the schedule of the day appropriate and well-managed? Um, uh, were the materials and handouts helpful? Uh, what do you think could be improved? This is going to be an anonymous survey. Is there anything else you would like to share about your experience or any suggestions? Um, then, you know, like I said, this survey is the first of many, inshallah. Uh, sorry, this, um, this power, this, Allahumma uh, sallallahu Muhammad, this intensive is one of, is the first of many, inshallah. If Allah enables us, my hope is that we could make this a culture in our community, uh, that we're going to ground ourselves in Islamic knowledge, learn a lot, and this is going to be a pathway for us to grow in our iman, Okay. So I want everyone to please take a, a chance to do the survey. What topic would you be interested in for the next one day intensive? 
I'm hoping to do one in February. We want to do another one before Ramadan. So we'll do another one day intensive in February. Um, and, uh, and so those are some subjects that you could possibly pick from. Purification of the soul. Um, a, a subject in Tezkiyah, yani. a fiqh of inheritance. I've also given this as a course before. It's like a, have a, it's close to 200, uh, pay, a 200 slide PowerPoint about the details of fiqh of inheritance. Um, uh, how to break it down, what, uh, you know, how to understand each portion that's deserving of what. It's, uh, it's a, I think it's a nice uh, uh, course to take, fiqh of inheritance. Tafsir, what would we do for that? Uh, that would be us taking a surah or two and spending a whole day and go, going over its meaning. Um, so that would be, you know, the stations of the hereafter, that would be like a series on the, the hereafter, uh, go, starting from the signs of the day of judgment to death to, sorry, sorry the signs of the hour to, the, to the, the death and the experience of the grave and then the day of judgment and Jannah and Nar. Uh, that could be one day series. Or if you have another one, please um, suggest it as well. When do you think is the most convenient for, for a future one-day intensive? The Thanksgiving weekend, like we have this time, or the winter break, or sometime during the summer, or um, a, a non-vacation weekend, like uh, on an average typical weekend that's not uh, winter break or summer break or, uh, uh, you know, just, just a regular Sunday during the year. Do you prefer that? Because sometimes on... Vacation weekends, people take off, they want to go on some trips or travels or whatever it is. Which day works best, Saturday, Sunday, or both days work fine for you? Uh, so please fill this out. Um, if you haven't filled it out yet, uh, as I'm talking, I hope that you're filling it out, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, we want everyone's feedback as much as possible. Uh, that way we could make uh, sound decisions for, for the future, inshallah. Okay? All right, I'm going to continue as you guys are filling that out, uh, just for the sake of time. And then I'll also take another break later on for more questions, bi'idhnillah. Okay? All right, so um, what are the key notes for stage two? Stage one was the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. Stage two, the companions, and uh, the stage three would be the successors. What are the key notes? First off, compilation of the Qur'an during the reign of Abu Bakr. Uh, uh, then a period of great expansion starting during the time of Abu Bakr. Until, uh, starting, sorry, this is, uh, there's an error here. Uh, a period of great expansion starting during the time of Umar, not Abu Bakr. You could correct that in your notes. Um, starting from the time of Umar, because Abu Bakr, he, his role was keeping the ummah together. His role was, Abu Bakr was keeping the ummah together. So it was maintaining unity. During the time of Umar, this is where the expansions started. And it continued until halfway through the Khilafah of Uthman. The time of great political strife during the second half of Uthman's reign and the reign of Sayyidina Ali. Implementation of Shura happened during this time. Especially during the reign of Abu Bakr and Umar. For this reason, Umar didn't allow the elder companions to leave Medina. He kept them in Medina. He kept them in Medina so that he could consult them on legal matters. This is what Sayyidina Umar did. He didn't allow them to spread throughout the lands. But then during the time of Uthman, it became difficult to have consensus 
because the, the, the companions spread throughout the land, and communication, of course, was much more difficult during that time. Okay? Fabrication of hadith was non-existent during this stage. What's fabrication of hadith? Making up a hadith, saying that the Prophet said this and he didn't. We have no evidence of this. We have evidence of this. What's the greatest thing that inspires hope and trust in this reality? What? Later on, we have books, compilations of books that collected all fabricated hadith. I'm talking about um, volumes of works. One of them is by Ibn al-Jawzi himself. Al-Mawdu'at. He, he gathered a book on all fabricated hadiths. And Bukhari, Imam Bukhari, radiallahu anhu, Part of his greatness was that he memorized the authentic and the fabricated. And he was actually able to pinpoint with, with um, brilliant precision every fabricated hadith that was presented to him. Right? So this is something that inspires confidence. When there was fabrication of hadith, the scholars were the first to spot it. During the time of the companions, there was no fabrication of hadith. We don't have any evidence of it. Someone wants to claim it, bring your evidence. All right. We were saying this before Salah. The companions, they were very precautious in their narrations. The first thing they did was they didn't narrate much because they, were, they feared being mistaken or forgetful and hence essentially lying in transmission because they knew the Prophet ﷺ said what? However, Intentionally lies on my account, let him take his seat in the fire. Let him look at his seat in hellfire. Right? So that's why they did not narrate much. And because they were focused on the Quran. Okay? Now, among the companions who narrated most, Sayyidina Abu Huraira, you see it right there. Abu Huraira, he narrated 5,374 hadiths. Who were the top five? You see them listed. Number two was Abdullah ibn Umar. Number three, Anas ibn Malik. Number four, Sayyidah Aisha. Number five, Sayyidah Abdullah ibn Abbas. Right? Who is credited with compiling the Qur'an? We already mentioned that. Who are the rightly guided khulafa? We already mentioned this. Oh, and here it gives you the time frame for each one of them. Uh, two years, three months. Umar, ten years five and a half. Uthman, twelve years. Sayyidah Ali, four years and nine months. And then some add Al-Hassan ibn Ali as the fifth rightly guided Khalifa uh, because he was a Khalifa for six months. And then he relinquished his rule uh, to unite the Ummah. This is something that, that we know historically. The Prophet ﷺ said about Sayyidina Al-Hassan ibn Ali, his grandson, he said, Nabni hadha Sayyid, My son here, his grandson, is a Sayyid, is a leader. And perhaps Allah will use him to unite between two large bodies of the Muslims. Right? So Sayyidina Al-Hassan was Khalifa for six months. And then he relinquished his rule to unite the Ummah. Okay? Um, now, what else? The companions were very precautious in accepting narrations. There's actually a funny story about this. So, minimal narration, we spoke about it. What about uh, precaution in accepting hadith? Sayyidina... Um, Sayyidina... Uh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari came to the doorstep of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab and he knocked on the door three times and when there was no answer he began retreating away and leaving 
So what? Sayyidina Umar then came out and he saw he almost left. So he called Abu Musa back, where are you going? Why did you leave so fast? So then Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ash'ari said to him, uh, I heard the Prophet say, if one of you seeks permission three times and is not granted, then he should turn away and leave. This is about coming to the door. So what did Sayyidina Umar do? <laughs> he said, you're going to bring me another witness to this hadith or else I'm going to hold you accountable. Because Sayyidina Umar, again, he did not allow, during his khilafah, he did not allow the companions to step out of line. He warned them, don't narrate too much hadith. Be very careful in what you communicate from the deen. Because you don't want to lie. You don't want to be forgetful. The only one who did not listen to this, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah. Why? The Sayyidina Abu Hurairah, he was blessed with brilliant memory. The Prophet ﷺ made dua for him. That he be given a vast amount of memory. And he was given this vast amount of memory. And he, was, uh, and he would say hadiths um, uh, very openly during the time of Sayyidina Umar. So Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ash'ari got so worried. Now he was going to be punished by Sayyidina Umar. He went back to the gathering and he said, this happened. Um, I, I knocked on Umar's door and he, he did not open. So I left and I told him of the hadith of the Prophet and he said that I need to bring a second witness or else he's going to hold me accountable. So do any of you, have any of you heard this hadith from the Prophet as well? And one of the people in the gathering stood up and he said, I did. And Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was relieved. And he went to Sayyidina Umar and Sayyidina Umar cleared him uh, because he got a second narrator for the hadith. But it shows you what? Companions were critical. They were careful in their narration of hadith. In fact, the companions also traveled for hadith. They also traveled for hadith. Now, there is a beautiful narration about this. In, um, uh, there's a beautiful narration about this when one of the companions came from Medina to Sham later on where Abu Darda was, one of the companions of the Prophet. He came traveling all the way from Medina to, uh, to Dimashq. May Allah give ease to its people. And when he came, he asked the Prophet so he asked Sayyidina Abu Darda about a hadith. And Sayyidina Abu Darda narrated to him the hadith. And the companion heard it and he began to retreat away and leave. So Abu Darda called out to him, Is this, you came all this distance just to hear this one hadith from me? He said, Nothing brought you out of your home except hearing this one hadith from me? So he said, Yes. So then he called out to him and he said, Abshir, he said, glad tidings to you. For I heard the Prophet ﷺ say that Allah will give um, radiance to one who travels out to hear my words and convey it to others. And I don't remember the exact hadith that he mentioned to him, but it shows you the, the companions were very keen on even traveling for hadith. And this was part of their practice. This was not just them. This carried on to later generations. Sunnat, this, there was a sunnah uh, of safar li talab al-hadith. To the extent that the scholars of hadith would say, um, uh, uh, 
We've given you this hadith for nothing in return. Take it from us. One of us would travel the distance of a month just for a single hadith. This is how committed the companions the, and the later, the early generations were to pursuing hadith of the Prophet Now, what are the six collections of hadith? You see them here. Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, and um, uh, Nasa'i, Ibn Majah. Some of them say among the six, instead of one of these, is Muwatta Imam Malik. And then it gives you the numbers of hadiths in each of these collections. The biggest one being Sahih Muslim, 9,200 hadiths. And then Bukhari has 7,275. But some of these hadiths are repeated, by the way. They're mentioned more than one time. So the actual number of genuine hadiths that are not repeated is less than that. Okay? And then it tells you when each of these, their time frames. The earliest of these was Imam Malik. He passed away in the year 179 after Hijrah. That's 795 common era, yani in the Gregorian calendar. Um, and then the latest of them was uh, Imam al-Nasa'i. He, he passed away in the year 303 after Hijrah. And that's uh, um, 915 common era. So that's, you could read this information more detail on your own. There was a slide that we left earlier. Stages of the evolution of fiqh, slide 59. Stage 1, that's the foundation. That was during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. That was from the beginning of Revelation until the 11th year after Hijrah. Slide 59. Stage 2. This was establishment. This was the period of the rightly guided khulafa. This is from the 11th year after Hijrah until the 40th year. Stage 3 was building. This is where fiqh began to flourish. And this is from the 40th year after Hijrah until the beginning of the second year, the second century. Until the beginning of the second century. This is basically until the end of the Umayyad dynasty. How many of you guys have heard of Dawla al-Umayyah? Any of you here? Umayyad dynasty, you've heard of this before? We have, the, there's a bunch of different dynasties and, and, um, and uh, periods of rule in Islamic history. We have the Umayyad dynasty, we have the Abbasid empire that ruled for a very long time, for centuries. And then we had the Ottomans, Ottoman Empire, that was most recent, and that was also for uh, centuries as well. And then there was smaller pockets of rule uh, between these, the, the Mamluks, and, um, uh, and then uh, we had Dawlat al-Murabitin, and so there's many, many historical pockets of time where um, you know, there was other ones, but these are the three big ones, the three major ones throughout Islamic history. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, inshallah, now. But before we get into that, it's important to have that timeline in mind. Now you go back to slide 67. This is the last thing about hadith altogether. Here, the Qur'an was written largely during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, as we said. Right? We said most of the Qur'an was written unofficially during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's why it wasn't just the companions that we depended on. It was written during the time of the Prophet. They had verified copies. So if you disbelieve in their collection of it, you should disbelieve in the Prophet himself. 
because he verified these copies, right? So, the same thing with the Sunnah. There was, hadith was written during his lifetime, Sallallahu But the formal inscription of hadith, the first to compile a book, this happened later on, actually. All right, hadith was first written during the lifetime of the Prophet, Sallallahu but not too much. Because the Prophet didn't want them to mix anything with the Quran. Now, look at this. Look at this. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. This is a beautiful thing here. Sayyidina Umar was the first to consider compiling the Sunnah. But he opted out so people could focus on the Quran. He considered compiling the Sunnah. But he didn't. What happened? With the passage of time, there came a man. Named Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. How many of you have heard of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz before? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. A few people. We need to know about Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. We need to maybe have a course on Islamic history. If people are interested in Islamic history, this is, a, this, is a, this is another thing that needs a course. We need to know about Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. He is one of the rightly guided ones who wasn't from the Khulafa al-Rashid. He came later on. He was a ruler for a very short period of time. About two years. But... He was a symbol of justice. He was from the progeny of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. Not his grandson. There's a typo here. Um, it's his uh, great-grandson. It's his great-grandson. What happened? <laughs> Subhanallah. So, as I remember it, Wallahu alam, I think my member, memory is uh, on point, but uh, Wallahu alam, just in case if there's error. Uh, uh, what happened was Sayyidina Umar during his khilafah, was walking about the markets of Medina. And uh, during the nighttime, he came across this house where a mother and her daughter were making um, milk for the people. And the mother was telling the daughter to add water to the milk so that we could get more supply. So the daughter said, How can we do this, O mother? This is dishonest. So, the mother told the daughter, it's okay. Amir al-Mu'mineen will never find out about what we're doing. It's in the darkness of night. So then the daughter told the mother, إِنْ كَانَ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لَا يَدْرِي فَرَبُّ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ يَدْرِي If Amir al-Mu'mineen doesn't know, Umar, Umar by the way, Amir al-Mu'mineen, leader of the faithful, this is a title that was later given to all the khulafa. After Umar, he's the first one to have this title. Uh, the, this title, Amir al-Mu'mineen, leader of the faithful, first given to Umar, then after that, the Khulafa were given this title as a, uh, you know, an honorific. Yani. Um, so anyway, um, so uh, anyway, um, she told her mother, if Umar doesn't know, then the Lord of Umar knows. So Umar, when he heard this, he went home and he told his son, I have a daughter, I have a woman for you to get married to. I believe she's very pious, and I believe that from her progeny there will come goodness. So Sayyidina Umar uh, uh, married his son to this girl. And they, the two of them, they had a daughter, right? The two of them had a daughter. And this daughter, now she, this girl, she's the grandson of Sayyidina Umar, this daughter was the mother of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And the greatness of Umar continued 
because of the greatness of this, 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 this girl who gave birth to someone who was the mother of Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. So Umar ibn Abdul Aziz is actually from the progeny of Umar ibn al-Khattab. And Umar ibn al-Khattab wanted to gather the sunnah, but he didn't. And Allah's decree was that his great-grandson ended up carrying on with this uh, wish that Sayyidina Umar had, and he was the first to order the compilation of the sunnah. All right? You guys all follow along with me? So Umar ibn Abdul Aziz instructed them to compile the sunnah into book form, and this was around the year 100 after Hijrah. And he sent this order out to all locations that they start compiling the sunnah. And the first scholar to champion this effort, his name is right there, important name historically to remember, is Muhammad ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. Muhammad ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. So this is how the sunnah's compilation began. Now, during the time of the companions, look, there's a lot of information in the book that will tell you about more things Fiqh-related during the time of the companions. Now, one of the important pages in the book uh, to go over is page 83. It'll tell you why the companions differed in some rulings in fiqh. Either because of different incidents that happened later on, or the disparity in their understandings, or hadith reaching some of them and not reaching others. Or um, the companions' dispersal and different province, in, in different provinces during the time of Uthman, like we said, they did not stay in Medina. They spread throughout the lands. This was some of the reasons for them end up differing. You know, we're, we're no longer on the same table discussing things. They spread to different lands. So them spreading, we had teachers in Kufa, we had teachers in Medina, teachers in Mecca, teachers in other provinces. It became a nature of, naturally, they're going to come up with different conclusions. Right? And then this, the importance of this here is Masadr al-Tashni'i fi Asr sahaba page 84, is also an important um, page for us to get exposed to. What were the sources of law for the companions? Who among the companions were muftis and jurists? It wasn't all of them. We said some of them were prolific narrators. Some of them were scholars. But most of the companions were lay people. They were not scholars. Right? So this is important. It's the end of the period of the companions of the of the prophet, and the next uh, uh, the the next uh, uh, the the next uh, stage is about the stage of uh, of of the of the of the of the successors, the stage of the tabi'in. Okay. Now, when we're going to go through this stage. Inshallah, I'll continue on for another 10 minutes and then we'll take another pause. When we're going to go through this third stage, this third stage is going to introduce us to a bunch of new things. Now the tabi'in. Alright, so what's a, what defines a companion? Just so, before we leave this, you know, just so I know, who are the companions? What defines a companion? Does anyone know what defines a companion? Who are the companions? Okay, those who saw the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that's one component in the definition. Uh, it's not the full definition. They say, ah, uh, huh? okay, that's a second one. Those who saw the Prophet, because Abu Jahl saw the Prophet, right? Those who saw the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, number two is in a state of iman. Why? What about him? 
Yeah, so then let's say those who met the Prophet ﷺ, those who met the Prophet ﷺ, uh, to be more comprehensive, as believers, during his lifetime, during his lifetime, ﷺ, during his lifetime, so if someone came to the Prophet ﷺ's janazah and saw the Prophet uh, after he left his dunya, would he be a companion? No, he would not. During uh, his lifetime, and they passed away as a Muslim. Even if for a portion of this time, they left Islam. They say. Uh, even if for a portion of time, so even if they met the Prophet even even if for a moment, they would still be uh, considered a companion. And even if there was a portion of time when they were not Muslim, they apostated. If, as long as they died upon Islam, they are considered companions. This is the comprehensive definition of a companion. The last of these companions passed away around the turn of the century. Around 101 um, or 102, 103. His name was Amr ibn Wathila. Amr ibn Wathila. That was his last name. The last companion, Amr, A-M-R, ibn Wathila, W-A-T-H-I-L-A. That was the last companion. It was around the turn of the century. Now, what defines a successor? A tabi'i. That is someone who met one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So he lived during the time of at least some of the companions and at least met one of them. Uh, and um, even, even if they learned from them a little, even if they learned from them one thing, they're considered from the generation of the tabi'in. So that's who a tabi'i is. Now what happened in this third stage? Now we're talking about the stage of the tabi'in some of them, um, uh, some of them, the tabi'in were even alive during the time of the Prophet, but they just never met the Prophet. Like who? Uwais al-Qarani, for example. Uwais al-Qarani was one of, he was referred to by the Prophet as Sayyid al-Tabi'in. This man, Uwais al-Qarani, was so great, but he never was able to come to the Prophet. Why? Because he was in the service of his mother and he had a skin disease. He had a skin disease. And the Prophet ﷺ says about Sayyidina, he says to Sayyidina Umar, there's going to come to you from Amdad al Yemen, from the people of Yemen, a man by the name of Uwais. And he is going to be from a people, the area in Yemen, it's called Qaran. Murad, min Murad, thumma min Qaran. He is from Murad and then from Qaran. His name is Uwais. He has a mother that he is truly benevolent to. Right? And then he says about his baras. Um, he, he says uh, that he had a skin disease. And he says, He was cured from the skin disease except for a very small portion that remained. The Prophet ﷺ said, if he was to take an oath by Allah, Allah would fulfill his wish. If you're able, O Umar, to get Uwais to seek forgiveness for you, then let him make prayers and seek forgiveness for you, O Umar. That's how great Sayyidina Uwais al-Qarani was. Right? And he didn't meet the Prophet ﷺ because what? Because he was taking care of his mother. So that's why he's not from the Sahaba, he's from the Tabi'een. So the Tabi'een, their generation started early on. But it continued to grow as the generation of the companions expanded. 
you know, especially, so we have some of these tabi'een who are kibar uh, tabi'een, the, 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 the most eminent and prominent among them, the elders among them. And then we have sigar tabi'een, the one that are in the latter generation of the tabi'een. All of this is taken uh, into consideration. Notes on this third stage. Look at the slide here. The division of the ummah. There was emergence of two sects. The Khawarij and the Shia. These came out towards the end of the Khilafah Rashida, these two groups. Deviation of the Umayyad Khulafa. Now we have something new in Islam. The establishment of hereditary kingship. Right? Inherited rule. This was not the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. By the forced acceptance of Yazid as crown prince. Yazid was not a companion. His father, Sayyidina Muawiyah, Anhu was a companion. Yazid was not. Yazid was forced upon the people as crown prince. The principle of shura faded away from the decisions of the khulafa. Bayt al-mal was converted into the personal properties of the khulafa and their families. Now we had the dispersion of ulama. This is another feature. So these are the three features of this time. The ummah began, the, the ummah was now divided. There was different sects. The second is, the, the, the rulership was misguided. And the ulama spread throughout the land. Dispersion of the ulama, partly due to the political reality, but also because of the need imposed on them by the geographic expansion. Now we have large territories of Muslims that the scholars needed to spread to, to teach the deen. And difficulty of ascertaining consensus because of the nature of pre-modern communication. Now it's hard to have ijma'. Ijma' was one of the source evidences in Islamic law. Consensus, gathering everyone and agreeing opinion. Now it's, it became very difficult because now the, the, they expanded to different lands. Right. Another feature of this time was fabrication of hadith. Why were hadith fabricated? Why? It gives you reasons here. Why on earth would someone make up a hadith? Now we had movements. Some of these movements trace back to the time of the Prophet like the movement of hypocrisy. Now in this time we have the zanadiqah. These are individuals who claim to be Muslim. They were not Muslim. They were actually trying to corrupt the teachings of Islam. So one of the reasons why hadith were fabricated were because of the enemies from within spreading heretical beliefs and falsities. What was another reason for fabricating hadith? Political differences. Again, people were committed to the message. And if they could find something in hadith to support their cause, everyone would follow it, right? So political differences made some people go to the extent where they fabricated hadiths, right? What's another thing that made people fabricate hadith? Now, factions based on issues of creed. Now, okay, we want to support a certain agenda that we have in aqidah. We're going to fabricate hadiths to support it, right? Fabrications by storytellers, right? People, again, storytellers. Storytellers were what? The rappers of pre-modern time. They were the rappers of pre-modern time. Sorry, one second.
All right. Um, so the fabrication by storytellers to entice people to listen to them. All right, I'm going to make things up. That's going to make people want to listen to I'm going to spice things up. I'm going to bring something new that no one else knows about. Um, and then also, fabrications by ignorant ascetics, right? So in order to encourage people to do good things, what are ascetics? Zuhad, yani. There were people who wanted to encourage people to do acts of worship. What did they do? So they say, all right, maybe we'll make up a hadith for a good reason. They had a good intention. We'll make up a hadith to encourage people to do certain good, virtuous acts of deeds so that they, they want to get the reward, right? So they fabricated hadiths. So these are reasons for fabrication of hadith. All right, the other thing that happened... All right, well, this actually now is going to take us closer. The other thing that started developing was this whole idea of Ahl al-Hadith and Ahl al-Ra'i. We're going to take our five-minute pause soon, inshallah. All right, so Ahl al-Hadith... We already introduced this. This started during the time of the companions. And it continued to develop. People who are committed to the, the word and uh, the, the letter of the law that manifested in the likes of Abdullah ibn Umar. And Imam Malik later on became Imam Dar al-Hijra, the Imam of Medina. And that's where Ahl al-Hadith were based out of. Ahl al-Ra'i, the people of opinion. And this started from Ibn Mas'ud and Umar. And like we said, it manifested in Imam Abu Hanifa, in Kufa, in Iraq. This is how these schools developed. These big schools later on, they developed. It started out during this time frame. Right? Where do Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmed fit in the equation? We're going to talk about this later on, inshallah ta'ala. Now, who are the main names in this stage and time frame? These are five of them. I don't know if any of you would know some of these, but these are very notable scholars. Any student of knowledge would be familiar with some of these names. Al-Hassan al-Basri is probably the most famous among these. Hassan al-Basri is one of the most prominent uh, elders from among the successors, the tabi'een. Hassan al-Basri. Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib. He is considered one of the most preeminent scholars of hadith in the early generations. Sayyid ibn Musayyib, Imam al-Nakhai, Nafi', Mawla ibn Umar, uh, Alqama. These are scholars who, um, who were leaders in this time frame. Actually, if you look, and inshallah, what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll connect you guys to the book. If you look in the book, it'll give you specific names and it'll tell you a little bit about these individuals. Um, and inshallah, we're going to do that. Uh, but in the next slides, it's going to talk to us about the fourth stage. So I think this is the end of the third stage. We'll pause here, and then inshallah, we will continue in the, in the next uh, session speaking, and we'll take your questions if you have them, and then we'll speak more about how this developed later on, what is Ra'i, uh, who is Abu Hanifa, who is Shafi'i, who is Malik, uh, and who is Imam Ahmad. Uh, what are their madahib? Why do we have madahib? Why do scholars differ? Inshallah, this, this course won't finish until we answer those critical questions. ta'ala. So now it's 5.46. We're going to take another five-minute break. We'll stop here. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallah, wa alaykum.